Hello, everyone. Welcome to the TeamCast. I am Dr. Preston Klein, Director of Research and Education at the Mission Critical Team Institute. The TeamCast is a show where my colleagues, Goldman Rees, Claire Murphy, Harry Moffitt, and myself, along with our guests, discuss all things Mission Critical Teams. Mission Critical Teams are teams of four to 12 people who are indigenously trained and educated and who solve rapidly emerging complex adaptive problem sets. MCTs work in immersive environments of 300 seconds or less where the consequence of failure is death or catastrophic loss. Regardless of whether you are on a mission critical team or not, we aim to bring you the broadest range of topics and guests as possible. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the TeamCast. Welcome back to the TeamCast, everyone. I am joined today by my good friend, colleague, and mentor for many years, Dr. Sharon Ravitch. Sharon, welcome to the TeamCast. Thank you, Dr. Preston Klein. It is a delight to be here and back at you. So the audience should know that the reason she said Dr. Preston Klein is because she was the chair of my dissertation committee and actually was the one who anointed me doctor. So uh-huh. she's one of the few people that get to say that and with all the credibility that she must <laughs> her. We um, all do humility. We all do all humility. humility. So for our audience members, in addition to being all those things, Sharon is also a professor of practice at the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education and currently a Fulbright Fellow, which is very impressive. She has gotten her master's from Harvard, where we first met years ago, and then a doctorate from Penn, where she continues to work. She is, and I won't go through her lengthy resume, but I will say that she is a person of record that a number of countries around the world, when they need to rethink about how they're doing their entire educational system, Sharon is one of the people they call. Case in point, she and I spent an amazing few days in Haiti after the earthquake a number of years ago, looking at how to move folks from poverty to sort of microeconomies and and how we can change the educational system there to do that. And I know that you do that in a number of countries, and I was trying to remember them all, but I know India, but I what are the other countries that you're working in? Well, I do I've worked for the past 12 plus years in Nicaragua. So that's one of the key countries. And I worked, as you said, and we worked together in Haiti. I've worked in Kazakhstan and in India, in Pakistan, in Israel, and in parts of Africa. One of the reasons that I was really excited to have you on the show today is because recently we've released a paper and we're doing a series of team casts sort of just talking about the paper. And one of the things that you're internationally famous for is thinking about uh, kinds of practitioner inquiry or collaborative inquiry with their communities of practice. What does that mean? What that means is, is that instead of going to a population and studying them with a lab coat and notebook, you're engaging with them on their kinds of problems as a community of practice. A community of practice historically is like, think about a group of craftsmen like carpenter or iron workers or silversmiths, right? Historically, that's where that comes from. And in mission critical teams, our instructor cadres, the folks that are developing the next generation, are technically speaking from an academic point of view, a group of communities of practice. And so how we work with them, how we think about that, really matters because what we want to do is make sure that their voice is both heard but also valid. So we're we're both trying to amplify their voice, but our role is also to say, is that really true? Like just because your your forefather told it to you, is that still true? Is that really true? And so we're both the advocate, but we're also a little bit of the critic, and critic is the wrong word, but like trusted partner to engage in the truth of things. And I, I want to say that all outside out loud to you, Sharon, and just see if you have any reactions or additions to that. Sure. I mean, there's so many angles and the, uh, what you've put out is so interesting and the paper itself is so dynamic. I mean, what I would say is, right, this notion of communities of practice with community and practice centralized, right, people who are coming together with a shared maybe goal set, but definitely commitment set, right? We are committed to thinking about the same kinds of things to move our practice forward. And to me, that's the power of communities of practice. I believe in that model. It's a great community mobilization model. And you don't need people from the outside to come in to activate that, right? It's inside expertise. Everyone is an expert of their own experience. And what that really means is we need hybridized knowledge. 
And so what you're talking about really from my language, my angle, you know, is about hybridizing expertise, expertise more broadly defined and, and how new knowledge is created by that, right? New knowledge is created when practitioners come together to really learn together about what it is they do every day. And so, you know, academics love to put lots of words on this, but really it's the power of the process that is why this stuff is so powerful. People really coming together to move the dial on what they and their contemporaries do in ways that help humanize and I think that's part of it. And it can be whatever your goal is. I think one of your goals, Preston, is, you know, people understanding, humanizing themselves, humanizing each other to prepare each other for the very difficult work of mission critical teams. Yeah. I think to a couple of things about what you said, when we do our summits and another one, we're just about to do one in Australia in a few weeks. One of the things that's interesting about that is that we bring together very diverse sets of, of communities of practice. So people from fire, medicine, NASA, special operations. And what's, what's always shocking to people that have never been to it is how much they have in common with the other folks in that group, simply mm -hmm. because so much of their lived experience, their day-to-day -day experience of developing people for those environments is similar. Whether you're developing people to run into a fire or run into a trauma surgeon, many of the same things exist. And I'll just add to this is that we're about to do an interview with the anthropologist Anna Simons, who wrote the book, The Company They Keep. It's a sort of a treatise on ODA teams and special forces. And one of the things she pointed out to me is the word communitas, which I use a lot in my research to sort of represent the, for lack of a better term, the tribal culture without kinship, obviously. Uh, yeah, yeah. But the that that group of people that come together with this, with this very deeply and intimate shared experience. And she pointed out that communitas is that historically, but the anthropologists mean it as the feeling that you have. So right. they describe it not as a group, but as a feeling. And it gets back to what you were just saying, which is these things are not just academic. They're also embodied in the way we are human. Absolutely. In fact, the embodiment, the feelings are the point. Right. Right. Yep. And that's, you know, one of the things when we wrote the residue paper, those feelings are so strong. And so when you leave it, you think you're just transitioning, but what's, you don't realize it's in the ether, it's in the woods, you don't see it, but you're also leaving a very intimate community. And in the back of your head, you'll just like, oh, they'll just come with me, but they don't. And you suddenly find yourself very isolated. And so we are often saying to people, look, You've got to have purpose when you leave, but you also have to find connection and belonging somewhere in a deep, deep way. Yeah. I mean, we've seen across fields, certainly in the field of education and in the field of counseling and psychology, connection is everything. It's the special sauce. You know, it's really what people need to be able to take up the hard work right. that we take up in our lives. You yeah. know, the connection is what, as you said, it gives us the meaning, it gives us the purpose. It gives us the energy to continue when when our jobs are difficult, you know, and I think that, you know, Western societies have done this thing where emotion and connection were minimized. And I think one of the gifts of the pandemic, if I may say it that way, even with all the devastation, yep. is in fact that we got to remember ourselves experientially that the connection is the point. Yeah. When we got to slow down, when we had that interruption in our, you know, regular flow, we really got to see as a society that these connections, they, they matter, they're foundational, and they're also catalytic to whatever change we're hoping to enact. I think, you know, just to amplify what you just said a moment ago, which is the energy to continue, right, in those difficult times. And we're often talking to folks who, you know, the nurse that's sitting in the break room staring at her shoes or the guy that's taken off his boots, right, and hasn't slept in a couple of days. And you're staring at your feet and you're thinking, I don't know, man, I just don't know if I can keep doing this. And it's often the hand on the shoulder from a nearby friend, right, and a member of the community being like, Hey, let's get back to work, right? We can do this. That's the energy to continue because if left to your own devices, you might look around and go, what is going, what am I doing? 
Right. I mean, honestly, and yes, I'm about to quote Bob Dylan, right? The most dangerous road I've been down is the road of my own mind, right? right. And so that's where that hand on the shoulder is actually a physical and emotional and relational reminder. You're not in this journey alone. Right. Right. Um, also in my own version of your journey, we're in this together. Yep. And you know what that does, even to our nervous system, let alone our emotional and psychological realm, but to our nervous system, right, is it's it helps us to settle in, right? It helps us when something happens to not just take the blow as an individual, but to understand that there are people who will stand with us, who do stand with us, literally and metaphorically, who take those blows with us. Absolutely. And, you know, sadly, I think I've seen this amplified the most, unfortunately, at some recent funerals that I've been to. And mm-hmm. it's it's come to really, I've, I've uh, sadly come to really understand the ritual of a funeral more than ever in the last few years for that reason, as it is one thing to suffer a loss. It is something about suffering a loss inside of a community where there's that shared, where there's something about that that allows you to both process it, but also to be bolstered, right? The energy to continue because you're like, I'm not alone in this, this isolation, exactly. this feeling. Um, the the thing I want to jump to, and I'll jump uh, you know, a couple of different places, but one of the things we talk about in the paper is the intentional use of stillness. And when you were talking about alone in your own mind, one of the things we found recently, and we were just talking to Dr. Michael Platt, the neuroscientist about this, is that reflection is a muscle, right? And what's happening to, and this is not me hammering on the coming generation, it's a recognition of some of the choices and the trades that we've made. And by having individuals who are stimulated all the time through electronics, through Mm -hmm. audio or whatever, that what that means is that they don't develop the skill of being bored. And what we're That's seeing right. in our teams is that when an athlete or a soldier or a, a love for us and is, is busy all the time, all the time, all the time, totally activated all the time, and then suddenly they're injured. Suddenly they're sitting in a hospital room with mm. their own thoughts and their brains eating themselves, right? Because they don't have the skills in which to do this. So I think about universities and schools, and this is pushing on some of your expertise in those areas. And I think, what is the role of us as instructors, as as educators, to start putting white space back into the curriculum, just periods of not boredom, but deeper reflection without distraction? That's something that I think a lot about as a methodologist, right? Because reflexivity, the action of reflection that's formative to the research that you design and conduct is, you know, in my field is everything. And so I talk a lot with my students who are counselors, therapists, teachers, school leaders, business leaders, NGO leaders. You know, I talk to a range of people about how important it is to have quiet, time and quiet thoughts. We can call it white noise. We can call it reflection. The point is that we have to know what to do with downtime and we have to know how important it is to create downtime. And the reason your example is a great one. And I think about, you know, this generation of young people and the instances of depression. And one of the reasons is that they have been presented you know, a technology mediated amusement park in their hand, right? You know, and life is not an amusement park. So that's a mirage that they're being sold from a very young age. And as you know, you know, it shapes their brains. And as you're saying, right, then they don't know what to do when they're not being amused by an external force. And so the what we teach in education and what I think a lot about is what does it mean to quiet yourself down to notice the space between stimulus and response, right? So Viktor Frankl has this saying that it's about the space between stimulus and response. That's where our power is. That's where we can choose our responses. And so I actually teach people how to quiet down enough to notice what's your self-talk? What are your thoughts? What habituated thought processes do you jump into given certain stimuli? 
right? And how can you conceptually and experientially create a space between what's said or what's done around you or to people around you and you're vicariously feeling that? How can you slow down time? And it is possible to slow down time. How do you slow down time and choose your response, which means you're noticing your self-talk, you're noticing your body and your stress responses. And in noticing those things, you reassure yourself and you are then able to say, okay, so now how do I want to choose to respond to the stimulus? I think that's the model for a lot of this, or that's an approach to a lot of this where we can actually retrain people to bring in the ability to create space within in the, you know, it can be in a quiet time. It can be in a chaotic time. It doesn't matter. It's both, but I have the power to create a space within myself where I can handle any problem set handed to me in the moment. And I can do that because I know how to control in a certain sense, manage my nervous system. Yeah. Right. So to me, part of, you know, the biggest part of my answer is yes, we need reflection. Yes, we need reflection time. Yes, it needs to be built into all professional development, all onboarding. All we really need to help retrain all of us, ourselves, each other, to process in the moment. In the moment, you can always process more later. But when, you know, as Viktor Frankl, you know, who created the modern mindfulness movement says, you know, it doesn't matter. And he he came up with this in a concentration camp. You know, it doesn't matter what is thrown your way. You can't control that, but you can certainly control how you respond. And you can work on that over the course of your life and just get better and better and better at it. And to me, whether it's racial literacy or mission critical team or whatever people are trying to learn for their professions, they have to do the nervous system work first or and simultaneously. So I, I think there's a couple of things that I just want to amplify here. One of them is, you know, when Viktor Frankl and Man's Search for Meaning, you know, one of the things that I took from this book is that at some level, not always, but at some level, the experiences that we have, there is a moment where it can, we have a choice to make between receiving it as trauma or receiving it as the fuel for wisdom. Exactly. And, and that's exactly it. Right. Because I think when we, when we listen to people who have suffered horrific things, some of them are just utterly destroyed by it. And some of mm-hmm. them are made into steel by it. Right. Yeah, right. Right. And I think we have to remember that. But I think to this point, and, and this brings us to this next topic, which is the intentional use of emotion. And, and one of the things about, you know, Art Finch and others have talked about is the need for emotional regulation. And often yes. our listeners will mis, misplace, misunderstand emotional regulation for compartmentalization or oh, denial of okay. emotion. That's and important. it's not that, right? No, it's, it's it's not. the recognition and acknowledgement that I'm having an emotion. And as instructors, one of the things that made me gravitate towards you so early in my career is that even though you're a professor of education and, and from the outside, it might look like you're giving me, you know, head pats and telling me I'm awesome. The <laughs> truth is, a numerous times in my career, you've jacked me up by not diminishing me, but by, by confronting me with maybe thinking I was doing or writing I was doing that was not to my potential. It wasn't what was true. It wasn't interrogated enough. It wasn't rigorous enough. And you would just look at something, you go, that's ridiculous. That's not true. So fix this. And and what I loved about it was, it was, it, it could be shocking, but it wasn't done with any other intent than I believe in you more apparently than you do right now. And that this is, this is ridiculous. And I'm not talking to this version of Preston, bring back the Preston that could pull off great stuff. Cause this is not great. And I think that that, that intentional use of emotion, especially in the modern educational environment is a dialogue we need to have in a much more robust way than we're mm-hmm. having. Yeah, I agree. I mean, look, from my from where I sit, I'm trained as a psychologist. I'm trained as an educational anthropologist. To me, it is all about emotion. 
I don't see anything happening well without attention to emotion. And so emotion can mean a lot of things, but it's the ability to read the room. It's the ability to often we can read the room, right? The room is external to us, but we can't read ourselves, right? And so to me, it's, it's as an educator, you know, using my body as an intervention, right? That, that, you know, in places where, you know, things are often transactional, urgent, creating relationship, being warm, being, for lack of a better term, loving and humanizing, that's how you maximize everyone's potential, yeah. your own and the people you're trying to serve. So, for, you know, with you as just an example, our emotional connection was always tended to as we had our professional connection, yeah. right? And so it was easy to be able to communicate with you because we had a rhythm. Yep. And that rhythm is in part about trust, right? And trust is in part about emotion and the ability for people to align our emotional expectations and our emotional realities with each other. Yep. And so, you know, to me, emotion is really the, the catalyst for everything, right? Yep. Whether it's positive or negative emotion, it, you know, negative emotion is a catalyst for us to often do things that are self-harming, you know, yep. positive emotion, we're often more self-protective. And so, you know, I think that in all fields we need, and especially in urgent fields, we need to come back to the building of people's emotional regulation, but also their ability for emotional connection, Yeah, you know, that that's not relegated to our personal lives. And when you mentioned earlier, you know, that people can sort of understand emotional management or emotional regulation as siloing or compartmentalizing their emotions, you know, really that ends up being repression of emotions. Yeah. And in a society that's really cruel to men about their emotions, particularly, but really all of us, it's it's an act of bravery to be emotional. You know, it's an act of bravery to offer what I think of as pedagogical or community love to people in a world that has become so much more transactional, that's not even necessarily expecting that. But we see it over and over again. The best commanders, the best CEOs, they have emotional intelligence. They know how to connect with people. They yeah. know how to create safeguards and scaffolds for the people around them. And I think those are sort of emotional tools we can use. You know, how does someone have their own emotional safeguards and their own emotional scaffolds? Yeah. That includes community. Right. It's it's interesting, right? Because some of the research that's coming out now on compartmentalization is what they're finding is this paradox between operators, great operators are people that are able to, in the moment, compartmentalize their emotions. However, here's the paradox. If those same people don't take those emotions back out of the compartment in a certain amount of time, it could be hours, weeks, months, that will actually start to destroy them. Hmm. And so the very thing that makes them great at what they do is also untended or unexamined the very thing that will later destroy them. And as we will repeat many times on this team cast, currently the suicide rate for veterans is that we've lost four times the amount of, of veterans to suicide than we have for combat operations over a 20 mm. year period of time. So mm. the same period of time, four times as many people have committed suicide. And so, mm. and, and by the way, I would love to say this is the majority of men, but this is one of the places yeah. that women have achieved parity. Yeah. Like, yeah. good job, ladies. And <laughs> yeah. so yeah. we have to start thinking about this notion of owning the whole problem, right? And the right, whole problem right. yeah. is not just an intellectual problem. It's an emotional problem as well. Absolutely. Nothing is ever just an intellectual problem. That's right. what enlightenment tried to teach. You know, it's like nothing's ever doesn't include emotion. We're human yep. beings. So, you know, if you're artificially trying to pull emotion out, it's like a magic trick. I mean, yeah. it, it's it's not real. And that's what's gotten us in trouble. And I think your the paper you've written really speaks to that, that we need this sense that people are just going to figure it out in the field as an yep. example. That belies what we know 
about emotion, for one thing, about the nervous system, right? We have to be priming people's nervous systems for them to be able to figure out anything. And even that, you know, people need the ability to practice. And one of the things in my work that I'm focused on now are practice mindsets, you know, and there are a bunch of different kinds of practice mindsets, but mindsets that are about how do I practice X? Right. And in some cases, X is taming the amygdala. Right. And in some cases, X is reaching out more relationally to those around us. Oh, yeah. Because we need to build those relational skills. We need to build our white noise reflection, being in homeostasis skills. Yeah. And these kinds of skills, as as you've so rightly pointed out in your paper, they are vital to survival. And so we have to understand that emotional survival means survival. Yep. Right. And and I think that's the and it's a hard sell when when over a number of decades and generations, emotion has been feminized. Yeah. Right. And that is one of the cruelest tricks to men. And I have two sons and I look at how society pretends that men don't have emotions, tells men not to have them, you know, the devaluing of emotion is why people are having more trouble with quiet time, with connection, with reflection. And we have to infuse it back into professional development, organizational development, right? These things have to be infused back into the system, particularly with the populations you're facing, right? Where this means the difference between survival and not. Right. This being the emotional attunement. It's interesting, right? What I've noticed later in life in one of the great quotes that I got is during COVID, my father passed away. And at the funeral, my aunt, my great aunt, who's one of these women who's like lived through everything with fists up, right? She said to me, you know, Preston, and, and this is the context you need to understand is that we're a very old New England family. And she says, I've been watching the men in our family for a long, long time. And what I've found is the ones that do well do two things well. And what they do is that when something is funny, they laugh. And when something is sad, they cry. Oh, yeah. And if if you can figure that out, it'll work itself out. And I I have, that. that was like some really deep stuff because what I've noticed with my friends' families, and I'm gonna make some stereotypes here, but they've actually manifested as true for me, is in a New England family's emotion is something to be embarrassed and ashamed about. But my mm. friends whose fathers are Italian or Jewish or Russian, right? Motion is like, that's part of the, the whole package. That's the like, jam. That's, that's what makes it all right? worth it. <laughs> like, we go from yeah. laughter to tears in, in seconds totally. and back, yeah. right? And it's all authentic. It's all real. And then it's all gone. It's not held on to. It's all processed and managed. Yeah, I and that, like, I mean, in my own experience, yeah. that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think these these ways to think about what is, you know, I don't think we need to answer this right now, but something for our audience members to think about was, you know, we all look ahead of us at the generations before and say, oh, I'd like to be like that person. Or I'd like to be like that person. And I think as men, we need to start looking at the older men in our life and go, mm. who who should I try to sort of replicate a little bit here, given how well they seem to be managing the various things going on in their lives? Yeah, I love how you're situating this on the developmental timeline. Right. Right, the generational timeline. If you ask 50 men, do you cry? Yeah. Do you know what? Probably 50% of them would say no. Yeah. Of the other 50%, 35 plus percent would say the only time they cry is in a dark movie theater. Right. I've done this experiment, by the way. I'm not making this up. So what do we surmise from this? We surmise that men are only given permission. This is what was modeled for them. This is what was messaged to them. This is what was indexed in a dark place where it's someone else's thing, right? Right. That is so tragic to me. And I see it. I see, I see it in men. It's like 
I can feel it off of men, yeah. how, how brutalized you all have been yeah. around just being able to have what you feel. Right. And it's like, I say to my girlfriends, you know, listen, I get the sexism against women. I totally get that, of course, but we're at least allowed to feel what we feel. Right. We're allowed to, yeah. you know, and I take that right every day. Right. And I think for, you know, my son, all the men in my life, I can see how constrained they are. Yeah. And it's by someone else's rules. Don Miguel Ruiz has this great popular book called The Four Agreements. Yeah. And the premise of the book is we all agreed to things before we had the power to decide if we actually agreed with them. We were kids. Right. You agree, you make agreements. Girls are going to act like girls and boys are going to act like boys because society is making the agreement for us. And the whole right. premise is we have to really reflect and decide which agreements we actually agree with. My hope for men would be that men would decide individually and collectively that that y'all don't agree with this absolute ridiculousness that you're not supposed to feel. And why do men die before women? Let's think about it. You know, well, if you can't feel your emotions, they go into your organs, right. they go into your arteries, they go, right? So I think that one of the most important things, right, it's the nervous system work. Part of the nervous system work is being in touch with what you feel, right? physically so and emotionally. We're going to continue on this vein, but I want to think about it from a little bit different perspective in that it brings us sort of into our next question, which is... In addition to the emotions of joy and, and sadness and everything else, there's also the emotion of conflict. Yes. And so what yes. I'm witnessing now mm -hmm. is both generations are, and, and for a lot of good reasons, have been raised to be collaborative, to, to be engaged and build consensus. But the folks that enter into the moral mission critical teams always don't always have the time in which to do that. So right. sometimes things have to happen and they have to happen in a very certain way or somebody's going to get die die or be hurt, hurt really badly, which means that instead of you being engaged or know the reason why or, or you know being asked or getting your ideas and thoughts, you're literally going to be told do this now. And, right. and right. if you get it wrong, they're like no not that way, this way. And What's interesting is, is, and it goes back to something we said before, is that I'm a big believer when it comes to children's development that more often than we'd like to admit that we're not mitigating risks, we're trading risks. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so oftentimes our unwillingness to let kids climb trees, fall <laughs> yes. out of the tree and think to themselves, man, I should hold on tighter, right? And learn that lesson when we can control it. We don't, and then they get to college or whatever where there's drug sex and alcohol and the stakes are much higher. Yes. Without the skills to manage the risk. And the same thing is true yes. with conflict, right? Is yes, because we're not teaching them how to give and receive feedback, sometimes in a pretty abrupt way, that when they first get it, they're having an amygdala hijack and going to acute stress exactly. response and locking up. That's so, exactly yeah. As an educator, when you think about developing young people, what are some ways that we can manage that side of the emotional coin, which is, hey, this is not going to kill you, but this is part of being an adult. Yeah, this has always been an interesting topic. I have found it increasingly interesting since the pandemic, you know, because this notion of protecting our youth, whether it's from getting hurt or germs, it is a very interesting thing. I read a book right when I was giving birth to the fir first of my children called The Blessing of the Skin Knee. And it's this awesome book about like, don't try to protect your kid from getting a skin knee because this it's really what you're saying because the skin knee shows them how to heal. Right. Right. And so I really, in my parenting, in my teaching, I think it's really about creating the conditions that include scaffolds for people to actually get messy, get dirty, get hurt and practice how to heal. Right. That's an emotional practice. That's yeah. a cognitive practice. Right. And that's a relational practice, even if the relationship is with self. Yeah. And so to me, you have to, and this is where training and professional development come in. You cannot protect people from reality or else they do not 
have the skills to deal with reality. And so this is why simulations of all sorts of problems in the work environment need to happen. And also why the real problems need to happen and get worked through. So I think it's about, it's about a mindset. It's about a set of practices and it's about a belief that people have to learn to be rugged and dogged through actual exposure to risk. Yeah. And if they don't have, if if there's not actual exposure to risk, the amygdala isn't doing what it's going to go do in the field. Right. right. You can't sterilize conditions and expect people to know what to do in non-sterilized conditions. That premise, I really wish more mission-critical professional development would understand. No, no, no. It has to be as bad as it's going to be or right. worse in the training or worse we cannot protect people by protecting them from learning what they need to know and building the skins they need to build to defend against the things that will inevitably happen so you know it's even in my own parenting right my children have been given loving feedback very clear very firm and non-wavering feedback when they need to level up yeah why they're going to get that for the rest of their lives. That's right. So one of the, the, you know, one of the very practical ways that I'm watching this unfold in ways that I don't actually have a handle on how to fix, and I'll give you an example, is in a university environment, an academic environment, we've seen over the last few years the rise of influence of students' opinions of their faculty on those faculties' career. And it's not yeah. just it's not yeah. just faculty, right? It's also, for example, yeah. the the staff that run simulation medical simulations. So here's a scenario is to this is the point you just made is that you're taking a group of nurses and doctors who will go into surgery to work on your family members in urgent environments. You're putting them in simulations, but the people running the simulations are hesitant to actually crank up the stressors, meaning the emotional stressors and the conflict stressors Because they might leave the students with a really rough experience, which is the intention to your earlier point, because it might negatively influence their careers. And that structure, which we're seeing fairly widespread right now, the the cooling or the lack of incentive or the increasingly diminishing incentives for faculty to confront students because of the potential costs of that. And that really actually worries me. For our society, oh, absolutely. Not, this is it's not me advocating for people to beat people up at all. Uh, no, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. And I just I mean, I, it should worry you. Yeah. It worries me, you know, and we see this across sectors and fields. I don't understand that mindset. To me, it's an ethical issue that right. you actually expose people to what they need to be exposed to. Who's doing who a favor? You know, I often wonder if it isn't those instructors not wanting to have to deal with the emotional fallout. Right. And I'm not even blaming them. Maybe there's not enough. Maybe the system needs to be recalibrated for them to be able to. But to not expose people to the training that they need, the training cannot be pulled out of the context of the training. Yeah. Right. So in a million years, I can't imagine the mindset that is avoiding exposing people to the very things that will enable them to survive and thrive. Yeah when they're in the field. It's really, it's that to me is really abnegating a responsibility to truly get people to practice. Practicing in a sterilized, decontextualized environment is not actually practicing. Right. It's approximating practice. And what's interesting about this is that I see both sides of it, meaning the inverse is true with the teams. So in academia, I will see people that will lean too far towards the accommodation, the support, yes. the enablement. Yes. And on the teams, I'll see people indexed too far the other side, which mm. is, oh, it was hard for me. It needs to be harder for you Ooh. without engaging the yeah. emotional side of it, like the support part of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to engage that part of it right. or else what are you doing? Right. And so it's what I find interesting is that it's actually not them versus them. It's actually both need to move back towards the middle. Yes. To acknowledge the entirety of the student. Well, yeah, that's beautifully said. I agree with you. I mean, it's, yeah, exactly. Right. And it's, it is that, you know, when you look at the student 
really as a body, not yeah. just as a as a number, you know, that body has to have emotional regulation. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's very much to me, I, I really do hear what you're saying. And I think it's an artifact of a culture that's gotten don't expose kids to germs and right. don't, you know, I think that there's something that's gotten miswired about what protection means. Yeah. Because really what protection means is actually preparing my sons for the world, even if it has made them uncomfortable sometimes. It is actually preparing your people for what you know they're going to need to be prepared for, including loss and grief. Yeah. Right, including loss and grief, hundred percent, and disappointment and yep. resentment, and uh, ironically, success and achievement and awards. So, being able to have the ability to, when somebody says, and I say this on our on our teamcast all the time, which is, if somebody pays you a compliment, it's actually not your job to evaluate the truth of the compliment. It's your it's your job to acknowledge the gesture. Right. Yeah, that's is, really well said. You know what I mean? It's not your job to go, oh, I'm not so smart or talented or no, it was somebody else. That's not your job. Your job is to go, Sharon, that's very kind of you to say that. Thanks very much. That yeah. that's it. That stop there. That's all you have to do. And yet we've all been conditioned to be so self-deprecating that we role model the inability to take compliments or to accept awards, even though it doesn't just benefit us, us, it benefits our community as well. Right. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's interesting that you say that because we it seems we've lost the ability to celebrate nuance yeah. and and smaller moments, you know, that really do comprise success in our lives, you know, success defined by adaptability, yeah. you know, success defined by happiness, you know, healthiness. I'm not talking about the more capitalist notion of success. I'm talking about living a good life. Like contentment. Right. Contentment. And I think American society in general, I think has lost the art of contentment. Yes. Part of that is coming back to your white noise, you know, our conversation about white noise earlier. Part of losing contentment is about when you overlay expectations onto every moment of your life, right? So social media has now made it, every moment of my life has to be interesting and fabulous, apparently. Right. Right. I mean, I don't buy into that, but but most of the people around me do. Right. That also means, especially for men, well, in every moment I have to be strong. And I've understood strong as these tiny little things, not crying, not showing emotion, never quote unquote breaking down, you know, not compromising, not compromising, not apologizing, whatever it is, you know, this is done to people, you know, in our deepest hearts, we all want to be loved and relevant. Yep. And so I think we have to get back to what would it mean for each person to be loved and relevant in their life and in their work. Right. You know, what would it look like for us to be able to give and take compliments more regularly? What would it look like for us to be able to actually feel good about ourselves enough to take the compliments and know that they're true? Yeah. Right. What would it look like? And so it would look like us pushing against yeah. the gendered forces that are telling men don't feel that are telling women you can only feel in these ways and that are telling all of us emotion is weakness. Yeah. When we know it's exactly the opposite. Right. Emotion is strength. Being able to understand and manage your emotions is a superpower. Yeah. And yet we're forgetting to teach the steps to getting there. And that's I right. think that's part of what really your paper talks about so much. It's not just the environmental stressors, it's what they do to our systems that need to be practiced. So I'm going to point us to one more sort of variable here or component or foundational component to a series of questions I'll ask you about moving from the different pictures within the article. Sure. And this has to do with some research that was done by Colonel Dr. Art Finch on the, the nature of the learning profiles within special operations where there is an exceedingly high level of things like ADHD, dyslexia, things like that. And 
you know, broadly speaking, neuroscientists are now talking about that as neurodiversity, which is to yeah. say that all of our brains are different and they're different along a spectrum. And in having these things that have been labeled as ADHD and dyslexia and things are seen by, let's call it the, the industrial school sort of system as a deficit because they're hard to control within a classroom. But when we actually see them in practice, what we find is high levels of innovation, high levels of collaboration, Absolutely. high levels of creativity. Absolutely. And what people, for good reason, right? We've, we've been having a long, many-year conversation about the need for diversity, and what happens is that those terms, as often happens, will get co-opted a lot of different ways yes. and leave people with a lot of different feelings in their yes. mouth. And what I want to point out for this conversation is I'm actually not making a racial gender argument here. What I'm saying is against complex adaptive problem sets, you need to maximize your neurodiversity. And one of the proxies Absolutely. for that is race and yeah. gender. But some of the other proxies for that are some of these different learning profiles. Absolutely. And so as we think about developing an, an entire generation that will have a, a wide, a maximum, huge spectrum of these, how can we as educators think about not developing a cohort, but developing a group of individuals who will come together as a cohort in a, in a working matrix? And I just want to sort of throw that out to you as, as to any of your thoughts. I love the way you think. Yeah, it's all about neurodiversity. You know, it's one of those things where it's like, uh-huh, right? Because as an educator and a psychologist, it's so common sense to me. Like, of course you need neurodiversity. You know, it's like Malcolm Gladwell wrote this wonderful essay on how so many CEOs actually have dyslexia. Yeah. And, you know, one of my own children has dyslexia. And I can tell you from all that I've read and what I have observed is it is exactly a brain that is wired for innovation. Yeah. Unquestionably, because you have to do cognitive workarounds to get to where everyone else just naturally is. That's right. And so even on my own research teams, I'm no longer just looking for, historically, I was always looking for what I would call equitable representation, right. which was about race, social class, gender, ethnicity, maybe, you know, religion, whatever it might have been about, depending on the study. Now I'm also looking for people who have different learning styles. Yeah. I really like to have at least one visual learner. People with dyslexia are often visual learners, right? Yeah. I like to have people with very different communication styles, right? So people on the spectrum who can be very direct are such an asset on my teams. And so I'm actually, and I've talked about this in a lot of professional contexts, and I've been interviewed about this because I'm very verbal. I'm very outspoken about the fact that when I say equitable representation now, it means neurodiversity too. Yeah. And I think we have to shift that. Also, often equitable representation leaves out people who are on the continuum of disability, yeah. right? And I think for all of this, it's about shifting to an assets, you know, an asset lens, an asset frame on every single person, right? Yeah. Because the deficit orientation to people as thinking they have cognitive deficiencies yep. versus that their brains are wired differently. That's that's the catastrophic mistake to think that disability means less than. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think why this becomes really important for mission critical teams is because when we look at the assessment and selection pipelines, often the mistake that people are making is this notion of a good fit, right? A good fit in the community. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and the danger there is you end up cloning each other. And what that does is yes, over time, and not immediately, but little by little over time, you're sort of decreasing your cognitive gene pool. You're decreasing the number of tools in your toolkit. So everybody's closer, and they're like, man, Sharon, that's a good idea. And you're like, thanks, it was your idea. And that's actually, <laughs> right? it's actually not helpful <laughs> to solving really complex problems because all we've got is a hammer, and what we need is a really robust tool cabinet. So- we, we've got to figure out how to acknowledge the weirdness as an asset, as a strength, rather than as a deficit, as you point out. And that- Unequivocally. That takes I a mean, lot of time and energy. And it takes really actually asking ourselves, what have I been programmed to think 
Yeah. About people who show up in non-traditional ways. Yeah. What have I been programmed to think? What have I agreed to that I don't necessarily actually, it doesn't really actually match my values. Like why do we think people with disabilities live less valuable lives, right? Not, I mean, not everyone does, but people, many people do. We've been programmed to think this. right? And so it's actually in part about deprogramming ourselves from our habituated deficit orientations about people who ha- just don't show up as normative. Yeah. I think these are all the foundations. And now I'm going to set us up for sort of what we've been leading towards And that's this idea that you've got a a group of students and these group of students, let's look at the modern generation, are stimulated all the time. They may or may not right be good at risk taking they may or may not be good at conflict they may or may not be good at stillness they may or may not be good at emotion they've been sitting in a classroom for 18 of the last past years and somewhere along the line for a variety of reasons they decide to go to medical school now medical schools are evolving and i don't mean to paint them this picture where it's all rows and chairs and instructors there's there's really dynamic amazing things going on but the predominant length of their educational experience have been in rows and seats and chairs and teachers. And so they're coming from this environment where after 18 years, they graduate medical school, the, the, the instructional part of it, in May. And in August, they're in an operating room as part of a team where there are humans coming in who are broken. And they've got to, got to both learn their job. They want to learn the applied side of their job. They've got to learn how to work on a team. They've got to learn how to work within a particular cultural context. They've got to learn how to give and receive feedback in very real time. They've got to learn to deal with with everything from conflict to trauma. And we'll talk more about that in a second. But as an educator and as a person who thinks deeply about these things, if you were to go to 10,000 feet and think about this society's children and those children who are will be entering into these mission critical environments and that we've got to figure out a better way because just to say it clearly as we say in the paper what we're finding is is that developing someone intellectually to enter these environments and expecting them to figure it out isn't working they're not figuring it out and as my friend Bryce McDonald at UCLA said to me so eloquently he said Preston the problem is is that we think we're teaching people how to swim when in fact we're teaching people how to tread water and what mm-hmm. happens is you add too much stress to somebody who's treading water and treading water soon becomes drowning And we've got to get back into the business of not teaching treading water, but teaching swimming. And so with that as a lead up, given everything we've talked about, when you reflect on sort of what we can be doing right now to better support these students to make that transition, what are some of the things that come to mind? I think to me, actually, the framework of post-traumatic growth is a really important one. This is building on the work of Rich Tedeschi. And, you know, I think Post-traumatic growth really talks about what happens when we go through traumatic events and are actually, the, the conditions have been created for us to be able to process and make use of those experiences. And, you know, it's such an assets-based approach to understanding trauma broadly defined. And the trauma of mission-critical teams is so profound, as you know. And so to me, this notion of post-traumatic growth, it's like not what happened to you, but what's right with you, right? right? It's the ability to meet people where they are, help them see their heroism and their strength and their resilience. And then they are able to make meaning, make sense of, and make use of that trauma to go do the next step stronger. And I think this, you know, the concept of post-traumatic growth, which I'm working on a lot now in terms of leadership development, is helping people rewrite parts of their narratives, parts of their life stories, where there's trauma, it's an inflection point, rather than however they might have been interpreting it negatively against themselves. Post-traumatic growth is really about how do we figure out, based on what we've experienced, how to pay it forward, yep. how to, while we take care of self. And so to me, a lot of what you're talking about makes me think about assets-based frameworks on how people leverage those experiences 
and the emotional skills they build through those experiences to build their move forward. So I think a lot about that. And then the other thing I'll say is, again, I think a lot about emotional regulation as a mainstay aspect of what has to be drilled into all professional development, whether it's through simulation or other kinds of things. When we are thinking about labels, and as you've taught me, labels really matter. And I think all of us need to be much more thoughtful about when we label something as trauma and when we label something as an experience or an event, which may or may not be trauma. Like until it's, we have to investigate it, we have to understand it, we have to come to terms with it. We can't simply label every negative event or difficult event in our life as trauma because it does a couple of things. One, it sets us up for a life that's full of trauma, which isn't good for you. And two, it, it masks the real trauma in our life that actually needs to get investigated, right? And then lastly, it diminishes the ability of us for, to grow and learn through these experiences by making them fuel for our wisdom rather than fuel for our sorrow. And so I, I say all of that because I think that how we frame those folks going from classroom to operating room, how we frame the experiences they will encounter rather than coming from a place of fear, man, you're going to see a lot of really rough things, man. Instead to say, just so you know, when you leave this classroom, you're choosing the hard path. And with the hard path will come a lot of extreme experiences. Some of those will linger with you and you need to deal with that. Some of them, however, will be the stories you'll then tell to the people that you develop as your ways of learning. And so I say all that to you to sort of think about, or not think about, but but really to be more nuanced about this idea of post-traumatic growth. Yeah, I, I really hear what you're saying, and I agree with you. And I think the only thing I would add is yes to everything you said, and we actually need a more finely differentiated understanding of actually what trauma is, right? Because if we reframe trauma, it's not necessary. It doesn't have to carry the wallop that we think it does, right? If we depathologize trauma, which we need to as a society, everything you're saying, I agree with. And I just wanted to also add, we still need to depathologize trauma. And we need to depathologize trauma because all of us will experience trauma in our lives on a continuum. Right. And if we pathologize it, we fear it. Yeah. And we think it makes us broken. Right. When we don't pathologize it, when we expect it. Yeah. When we normalize it. Yep. And when we address it through assets, positive assets-based ways you know, there's just more wiggle room for the ways that so much trauma is experienced. It's not a death sentence. Right. It's not, this is it. I had this trauma and that's it. You can move trauma. You can move mountains, you know, you can, you know, we, we know how to get people through these things. Right. So I really hear what you're saying. And I also think our society has like a 1920s view of trauma still when we know that it's a movable thing. Yeah. It's not a sentence of any not a death sentence. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's literally, this is, this is part of your identity, this thing that happened to you. So this okay. leads us to this next question, right? Yeah. As, we, as we come towards the end of our time together, I've got a couple more questions for you, but sure. this idea where Okay, you've been in the operating room. You've you've managed the days, your shifts. You know, you're a couple of days, a few weeks, maybe a few months in, and then all of a sudden you have the bad day, right? A child was in a car accident. They came in with four limbs. They're leaving with three limbs, and you got to go tell the parents. That's by any estimation a horrible, horrible day. Horrible. And so, but this is the this is the hard part. This is the path you chose. This is what hospitals do. There isn't any way to dress this up and make it nicer. It is what they do and it will happen again. Absolutely. And so when we think as educators about preparing people for that, how do we do that? 
Wow. I mean, that's that's the bajillion dollar question. And right. I, I will say it's a lot of what we're talking about. If a curriculum has to meet people where we are in our bodies, that is about emotional regulation. That's about understanding cognition. That's about understanding nutrition and, and sleep and wellness, right? Yep. And so to me, preparation, you, you who want to over-prepare people, yeah, you yeah. want to hit them so hard they, that like whatever hits them when they get into their actual jobs yeah. feels like a breather. Yeah, right. Right? Like I think of it in the reverse. I think training and professional development for mission critical teams for people who are in the lion's den for yeah. their professions has to be so difficult because then people are building those muscles. If it's not, I actually feel we're abnegating our responsibilities as educators and professional development experts to give people ideas and not to ground those ideas in their bodies and their nervous systems and their brains. It's not it's not fair. It's not a it's not an ethical practice. And so I really believe strongly in the wedding of the intellectual, the cognitive and the affectual, you know, the affective. Right, the emotional. And the emotional, exactly. Yeah. So one of the things, and, and this will we'll now sort of head to the finish line here, and I want to try to tie it together in the following way and, and tap into some of your expertise as a recognized international expert on sort of research methodologies. And I'll say it this way, which is this paper that we wrote started out because I was watching teams around the country preparing people intellectually, cognitively, me physically for these other environments that we've talked about in these pictures and realizing that there was a whole sort of component about an existential transition that no one was really talking about. And by that, for the, for our audience, what I mean by that is purpose and identity. Who am I? Why am I here? What am I doing here? As a student, that sort of provided for you. You know, you're a learner. That's your job. Somebody tells you. Mm -hmm. you first go to the team. You know, you've got to establish that for yourself. You've got to figure out why am I here? What's going on? And you really need a team to do that. The social brain, you've got to you've got to do that collaboratively. But what this all culminates in is this idea that on the bad day, you've got to actually recognize that you are an individual with an identity and a purpose, which not only allows you to be in that space, but needs you to be in that space, right? Right. That you're, you're, no one's going to give you permission explicitly to enter that space. That's right. We as society need you to. Right. And so one of the things that when I started doing this research early on that you and I talked about is I was, I was making the mistake, I think, of thinking that I was going to find the solutions to all this in the written journals. And it oh, wasn't yeah. until I started really, really listening to the instructor cadre, to the communities of practice, where I recognized that they are the elders of a community who are in part responsible for the development of, of people's identity and purpose. Absolutely. And so when we think about, you know, people will say to me, well, Preston, is this article peer reviewed? And I'll say it actually is by the actual peers. Meaning oh, the, absolutely. Right. The actual practitioner. Yeah, wait, wait. I mean, that's that's a regurgitation of a very limited sense of what an expert is. Right. right. An expert is the person doing the actual thing, not right. somebody sitting in their office typing about the actual yeah. the thing. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, to me, I mean, I'm a professor of practice. Everything for me is about practice. Practitioners are the experts I am always going to. Right. I don't need a die in the wool academic to tell me if a concept that has to be in motion in practice works, right? Yeah. They can tell me if a theory is good. Yeah. But if you actually want to understand working theory, it's all about practitioners and communities of practice. We need to dislodge the understanding that knowledge is generated just by the academy. Right. The real knowledge that the people you and I work with need is actually from the communities they are in. That's right. right. And it's people like you and me who become bridges yeah, almost back to their own wisdom that's already in their communities. But they're so busy, as you've taught me, running the engines that they need someone like you to come in and say, wait a second, let me look across all these contexts and see what some of the shared issues are, some of the problem sets are. And so I think, 
yes, of course, it's nice to have people from academia coming in and out, but really the corpus of what we need to learn for you to do what you do for the instructor cadres, for new you know, people coming into these roles is actually to foreground their own community's wisdom, yeah. right? And for that to be the driver of how they do all the things you and I are talking about well. Yeah. And and I think I will start to end us here, which is just to say, to bring us back to the very beginning, to those of you who are listening, you might meet that profile we talked about, about greater neurodiversity, where maybe school wasn't your favorite place. Maybe you were told that you weren't that smart, or you weren't living up to your potential. And then maybe you're hesitant to put language around what you know to be true. And I would just really encourage you, if you're listening, to ignore all that, to actually recognize that the country really needs you to think about and articulate the value, the clear value that you bring to the world and be able to, along with your your other members of your community, think about how could I articulate that in a way that Sharon and Preston would understand and meet us halfway. And I think you'd be surprised what extraordinary things are possible when that happens. I absolutely agree with you. I mean, that's that's my work. That's your work, right? I think that, you know, we understand the inc- powerful catalytic wisdom in these practitioner communities. Yeah. And whenever and however we can harness that, bring it out into the light and elevate it, I think that's really ideally how how this moves forward. So just as our last closing thoughts, I would ask you if you think about the folks that you know that are out there in the hospitals or the schoolhouses and the instructor cadres, is as instructors, if you worked with us before and taught in our courses, what advice might you give? What's one thing you might say to them to just think about their practice tomorrow? That's such a powerful question. Are you being kind to yourself? Can you notice your self-talk? Can you notice your self-talk when you're stressed? What is it? Can you notice the old, old messages you're telling yourself about yourself? Can you notice those? Can you think about where they come from? And in doing so, can you release some of the more constraining self-narratives you inherited, you inherited from other people before you were old enough to decide if you actually agreed with these assessments or not? So I would say, really assess and release that which is not yours and and claim that which is right it's your it's it's your birthright as a child of the universe to be happy and well and so moving into that as a part of your professional remit so that you can do all the rest of the good that you do is is just of the essence you matter too yeah each of you matters too and you matter to you and you matter as a child of the universe and you matter to your families right Yeah, what I often say to the Americans listening is, you know, our country was founded on the pursuit of happiness. You have a certain obligation to try to do that. And if you're unhappy, it's your responsibility and duty to fix it. It's your responsibility and you need to fix it, but it's not necessarily your fault. That's right. You just have to make the choice to change it now. Yeah. With support. Yep. Dr. Sharon Ravitch, it's been such an honor to spend this time with you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this and uh, I look forward to seeing you soon. Preston, thank you so much. And to everyone listening, thank you for your service and and God bless you. Take care. Thank you again for listening to our TeamCast. For more information about the Mission Critical Team Institute, please go to www.missioncti.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Instagram. If you are a Mission Critical Team that wants more information on our courses, please reach out to our Director of Operations, Janice Jackson, at Janice at MissionCTI.com. That's J-A-N-E-S-E at MissionCTI.com. And once again, thank you, Janice, and thank you to Shelby Row Productions for helping us produce the TeamCast. Have a great day.